I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Prompted by the Labor Day holiday weekend, this show explores the theme of work, labor, and unions. Joining me in conversation is John Kretschmar. John Kretschmar received his Master of Social Work degree from Wayne State University in Detroit. He worked with organized labor and the University of Nebraska-Omaha to start the Institute for Labor Studies in 1980. Since then, he has taught organizing and negotiating skills to thousands of trade unionists from Nebraska and surrounding states. He is a member of the American Association of University Professors and the United Association for Labor Education. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, let's start with Labor Day. Could you tell us a little bit about the origins of Labor Day and what it's meant to commemorate? Yeah. Um, and Labor Day in the United States has a uh, an interesting and long history that people don't fully appreciate. The first Labor Day in the United States was celebrated in major port cities going back as far as the 18, early 1800s, and they chose the 4th of July as Labor Day. They wanted to finish the glorious work of the revolution, was the, the expression they used. And then there was a very large push in 1886 for the eight-hour day in the United States. The eight-hour day movement was supposed to uh, have a national celebration on May 1st, um, 1886, and uh, some of the backlash that happened, especially in Chicago, um, led to the killing of uh, some people who were protesting, and the uh, labor movement in the United States uh, took the idea over to Europe, and the rest of the world celebrates uh, their Labor Day on May 1st as a result of the incident in, uh, in Chicago. And, of course, the backlash in the United States about this incident and the horrors associated with it in the eyes of the public uh, caused organized labor to stay away from May 1st. And um, by the 1890s, Individual unions had been selecting the first Monday in September as their Labor Day. And eventually, after the 1892 uh, Hawthorne Works uh, strike, the terrible time with the uh, Pullman strike, there was a president who decided, I need to throw a little bone to, to organize labor. And there was a representative in Congress who said, let's make this a national holiday. And so in the 1890s, it became the national holiday that we know as Labor Day, um, specifically set up to honor the working women and men of the United States and what they do to make this country move, keep going. It reminds me of most national holidays that have cease to recognize the concept that they are holidays <laughs> from laboring and have become just another uh, another way to honor the consumer culture that, that, that we've turned into. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, for most people in the United States, they know none of the history and they see it as the, uh, the day that summer ends and uh, school begins and uh, it's sort of a social event rather. It, let's go with our friends and 
eat and drink a lot rather than let's remember its roots. Let's remember we're standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. Um, that's not part of the picture. So in some ways, then, that makes me see that lack of awareness and indeed potentially lack of respect for the intention behind the holiday as representative of the diminution in our respect for labor. Yeah. Um, labor in the United States had its peak following World War II up to 1973, maybe, that that quarter century was a period when union density reached its peak in the United States. It was a period where the economic might of the nation was never more broadly or fairly shared. Um, when union density is high, it does a number of things. I explain it as having a trickle-up effect and a spillover effect. Typically, the people who are organized in any workplace are the hourly workers who do the uh, meaningful work that keeps whatever business or, uh, alive. Um, but first-line supervisors are typically not represented by organized labor. I had an Uncle Fred who was a first-line supervisor at Chrysler, and he didn't like the UAW contract and having to live with it. But once every three years, Uncle Fred became a cheerleader for the UAW. And uh, he never really explained why, but looking back on it, the only way a first-line supervisor got a raise was when the uh, the union got a raise, and he would get everything they got plus a little bit more because, after all, he's a first-line supervisor. So that's a, the uh, trickle-up economics, and that happens in workplaces all across the United States. The spillover, when union density is high, Non-union employers are forced to keep their wages relatively close to the union scale because if those non-union employers fail to do that, their best hands, their best workers will leave them and go to a union workplace somewhere else. So union has this, this is sort of the spillover effect where uh, good union contracts also influence the uh, the well-being of other wage earners who aren't represented by unions. And as union density dies, as union density declines, the spillover effect is uh, greatly faded. Before then, we talk about that decline. You mentioned the mid-70s perhaps as being the pinnacle of union uh, involvement. But before we get there, perhaps could you talk a little bit about some of the drivers and maybe the intellectual and practical underpinnings of the labor movement? It, it seems obvious to me that we live in an economy that is driven by the big dogs. And by the big dogs, I mean publicly traded companies that account for two-thirds of the gross domestic product. And if you're the CEO of one of those big dogs, you're competing with every other CEO of every other publicly traded company to uh, attract investors and keep investors. All things being equal, the thing that investors look at, especially institutional investors, is how your quarterly returns looking, right? And so every CEO thinks 24-7 about driving down all the costs of doing business so that they can outcompete another CEO to uh, attract and keep investors. Uh, that idea of driving down all the costs of doing business and thinking about it 24-7 uh, reduces labor to nothing more than a commodity, uh, something that can be bought as cheaply as possible. People who go to the university and learn human relations 
uh, will tell you that uh, businesses are always saying, our workforce is our most important asset. They are critical to us. Um, but in the, the big suites for the senior decision makers, labor is seen as a cost. In fact, there's a a fellow named Jack Welsh, who was one of the most respected CEOs of the last century. Uh, and Jack gave the sound advice to his fellow CEOs that you should put every plant you own on a barge and move it around the world to seek lower costs. And he left the United States. He took unionized plants that were making parts for GE turbines, shut them down, moved them to Mexico and after NAFTA, after the maquiladoras were in place, and then didn't stay in Mexico all that long before he moved again to South Korea. So he didn't just give the advice of putting a plant on a barge. He actually walked the talk. That sort of um, the need to maximize short-term profits uh, is resisted, and it's resisted by workers, and they form unions. In fact, a former secretary treasurer of the AF of LCIO, the American Federation of Labor Congress of Industrial Organizations, once said the most effective answer to organized greed is organized labor. All that unions do uh, is that they bring meaningful democracy to the workplace so that everyday wage earners have more than the right to quit if they think the employer is being unfair. With a union, they have a right to work collectively with management to raise levels of fairness and justice above the levels unilaterally imposed by employers who want to become leaner and meaner by getting their workforce to do more with less. Um, unions bring democracy to the workplace, and with that democracy, uh, they are able to achieve uh, remarkable results uh, in raising levels of fairness and justice that we think is important. Let's go.
Well, you mentioned earlier that some of the seeds of the Labor Day movement could be seen in organizing to achieve what would seem as simple as an eight-hour day or safety in the workplace Mm -hmm. or reasonably fair and safe treatment for minors, for example, and minors being, uh, I mean, children, not minors digging underground. And so at that point, it's not even just about organizing for uh, contracts and wage negotiations, although I'm sure that was a part of it, but it was as fundamental as safe working practices. The first mission statement of the American Federation of Labor um, was uh, given to us by a fellow named Sam Gompers, who was the first president of the AFL. And he was asked, what does labor want? And he replied, not in terms of dollars and cents, uh, he talked about more schoolhouses and less greed, uh, more justice, less revenge. He spoke in terms of values. Um, and if I were to look at that today, I would say that uh, Sam Gomper said the goal of organized labor is to help make the American dream available to everybody who sells their intelligence, experience, and strength to an employer to earn a living. Values are important. When we talk about dollars and cents, um, that feeds into already established anti-union stereotypes that are out there. Uh, But when you talk about values, when you talk about unions uh, being the ladder that everyday wage earners use to climb out of poverty and into the middle class, when you, uh, I had a bumper sticker on my car that said, uh, the labor movement, the folks who brought you the weekend. Great little expression, and it's absolutely God's truth. Uh, We just don't know about that. I want to play a clip. Uh, This is featuring the late Christopher Hitchens, a well-known left-wing author, social commentator, and intellectual. Uh, In this 2010 interview with Jennifer Byrne of the Australia Broadcasting Corporation, Hitchens talks about the unions and Margaret Thatcher. So here's an excerpt. Deep down, you said, in your, the, the rodent in your viscera was that uh, you thought, conceded that in some matters she might be right. And you were a man of the left, yeah, so you were I feeling was. the siren call even then. Well, to give you, yes, I mean, to give you an idea, I felt myself very identified with the left, with the workers' movement, but I knew that in the area of the economy where I worked myself, namely Fleet Street, the print and magazine and newspaper racket, craft, business. The trade unions were the most reactionary, the most corrupt, the most wasteful, and the most cynical outfit in, the, in what was already a very cynical, corrupt, wasteful business. But for an idealist and someone who believed in the working class and in, and in the socialist movement, I couldn't close my eyes to the fact that the unions were, mm. were like a waterfront, mobbed-up lot. So I thought, well, she's right about that bit, but it wasn't kosher to say so. I find it fascinating just to to reference that because there's no doubt that Christopher Hitchens is clearly on the, you know, a man, as he says, on the the left-hand side of the spectrum, clearly a pro-worker, intellectual. And yet I feel as if somewhere in the 70s, the labor movement clearly lost some of its footing and it seemed to be losing the publicity war in some way. Oh, and absolutely. So I want to explore with you what is it that Hitchens was saying and how did capital or business get the upper hand in the labor movement? Um, well, 
I don't know about England and Fleet Street. In the United States, uh, organized labor is probably our nation's oldest, largest, and most successful institution advocating for social and economic justice. But uh, that said, there are always uh, organizations, institutions that have corrupt leadership. Uh, the church has had corrupt leadership, uh, banking, business, uh, and unions as well. Uh, the distinction that I like to make when I hear this frame is that unions by law uh, must have their leaders stand for election every three to five day, uh, three to five years in the United States. Um, and so if you have a rascal in there that you don't like, because it's a democratic organization and they must stand for re-election, you have a chance to kick that rascal out and put another one in his or her place. The notion of the PR war, that's an interesting piece. When I talk about U.S. history, I talk about uh, a seminal event being a memo that a fellow named Lewis Powell wrote to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. This is prior to uh, Richard Nixon nominating him to become a Supreme Court justice in the States. And Powell wrote a memo to the chamber bemoaning the world as he saw it, where the future, the youth of America, were very unhappy with uh, capitalism, were unhappy with the Vietnam War. And he saw that happening, and if it played out as he thought, uh, conservatives were going to be in serious trouble. The Republican Party particularly would be in serious trouble. And so in 1971, he wrote a memo to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and he said, there's an answer. Uh, it's a long-range answer, uh, and you can help put it together. What you need to do is you need to find enormously wealthy conservatives who will start what we call conservative think tanks. And so by 1972 and 73, we have the beginning of the Cato Institute. We have the Heritage Foundation. We have ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange. Um, so all that starts happening. And with those think tanks, they have the best and brightest conservative minds writing and talking about capitalism is good, free enterprise is good, uh, any restrictions on it is bad, and oh, by the way, unions, they're a pain. One of the first pieces I read in m sort of popular media in the United States was, uh, I think it was in Business Week, a fellow wrote in 74, that there was a period following World War II, this sort of golden period, where for every percentage increase in uh, productivity, there was a corresponding increase in wages, right? So if you made 10 widgets an hour and you got paid $10 an hour, it was a dollar per widget labor cost. So 15 years later, you were making 15 widgets an hour, you could be earning $15 an hour and no inflationary cost as a result of the labor cost. Um, so in 1974, this fellow writes that uh, labor is going to have to understand that that deal is no longer on. Or we will not be able to afford to pay them more, even if they are more productive. Uh, that increase in funds needs to go to the investors. Wow. So from that time, the social contract, as it's sometimes called, uh, that employers had with their employees, that was broken. And unions became an evil. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
what have been some of the other reasons put forward that unions are either harmful or no longer relevant? Well, the the largest one, uh, the one that I run into most often, is that we have uh, laws on the books that protect workers in the workplace, right? There, there are worker rights, uh, worker rights legislation. There's health and safety legislation. Uh, therefore, unions are redundant. They're no longer needed. And this is not a new cry. I mean, we, we hear a lot about it after these think tanks start coming in. Um, but the oldest reference to unions being dinosaurs uh, dates back to 1886 when the Toronto Globe and Mail uh, said that unions were once necessary, but uh, do we still need them anymore? This is in the height of the uh, Gilded Age. This is uh, when there were uh, haves and have-nots. There were robber barons and huddled masses, and the line was that unions are redundant now. So when I get into individual conversations with people who raise this redundancy uh, argument, uh, I ask a question. I said, how many of those pieces of legislation that create rights and safeguards in the workplace, how many of those pieces of legislation were initiated by employers who got together and said, you know what, we've really been treating people like dirt and we need a strong piece of legislation to protect them and give them rights that, uh, that we can't on the outside? And the answer, of course, is none, uh, because every right and safeguard that is created legislatively directly and indirectly raises the cost of doing business and employers employer associations and their allies in elected office fought against each and every one of those pieces of legislation. And once they got enacted, they did the best to starve whatever agency for enforcing them of the funds it needed to effectively and efficiently do its work. Economic inequality has been part of the world we live in for the last 40 years. I am no statistician and I'm certainly not an economist, but if we follow trend lines on a chart of periods in American history when there was greater proximity and economic mobility, that would have been perhaps around uh, immediately after uh, around World War II, that sort of era. Now we're seeing a massive decline in union involvement and we're seeing historic levels of inequality and immobility up this ladder of opportunity. Is this just putting data together that doesn't belong together? I don't know if it's cause and effect, but there's a strong correlation. Correlation. Um, I have a graph that I use in some of my classes that uh, one line traces union density and it's increasing uh, rise and then fall. And another line on the graph traces the percentage of um, wealth going to the richest 10% of American families. And uh, as density goes up, the wealth, percentage of wealth going to the richest 10% declines. And as union density goes down, we get the in, uh, income inequality that we're looking at today. And like I said, uh, there's a professor now retired of economics, labor economics at UNO, who uh, she said, the last year that the non-supervisory wages were able to outpace inflation was 1973. That's just stunning. Um, and so with that many years of income inequality under both uh, Democratic and Republican administrations, you get people who are very, very, very upset 
because our economy is not working in ways that advance, advances the general welfare of the nation. Our government is set up theoretically to promote the general welfare. And when the economy fails to do so, I think the government has a responsibility to intervene and, and nudge it in that direction. Let's pick up on this theme then, because I want to explore just a little bit further this idea of uh, a concerted action against unions and why we, the average working person, seem to be uh, short-sighted in our own best interests. What I want to do is play a clip from Brad Lichtenstein's documentary, As Goes Janesville, uh, featuring Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and billionaire businesswoman Diane Hendricks. So let's just hear this clip. Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red state and work on these unions? Oh, yeah. And become a right to work? Well, we'll in fact, the what big thing... What can we do to help you? Well, we're going to start in a couple weeks with mm -hmm. our budget adjustment bill. The first step is uh, we're going to deal with uh, collective bargaining for all public employee unions. Because right. you divide and conquer. Yeah, divide and conquer is nothing new. The oldest reference that I can think of is uh, in the building of the Transcontinental Highway uh, Railroad. And when a guy named uh, Crocker, who was the head of the Central Pacific, was telling the white laborers who were complaining about having to work next to Chinese laborers, explain to them that uh, we can't get enough white workers to do the job, and if you don't like it, we'll be forced to lay you off and hire nothing but Chinese. And, of course, the Chinese laborers were being paid 30% less than the white laborers. So divide and conquer is nothing new. It is a standard go-to for... Uh, employers um, in 1886, going back to the year of the uh, the push for the eight-hour day, a fellow named Jay Gould, who was a robber baron at the time, who later owned the Union Pacific Railroad, uh, intentionally forced a strike on one of his rail properties. And uh, he was asked uh, flat out, uh, doesn't the potential strike of the rail unions worry you? And uh, his quote is probably the most brutal uh, in all of American labor history. He said he wasn't worried because, quote, I can hire one half of the working class to kill the other half, end quote. When he says that, and I bring that up in class, I, I ask my students, uh, geez, uh, do you think he thought of himself as part of the working class or is he somewhere else? And do we still have that distinction today between um, people like Gould and the rest of us? And it's an interesting piece because uh, we had a ton of European immigration coming in the United States. And when you immigrate to another country, then as today, uh, you bring your uh, ability to work with you. You don't bring a ton of cash. You don't bring the ability to start a business. Uh, you are escaping a miserable condition to try and find something better. And all you bring with you is your intelligence, experience, and strength. So... Here we have a ton of people coming into the U.S., um, and they are looking for the American dream. And in many instances, they get off the boats, and they are promised a job somewhere, in the, and their passage would even be paid for in some instances uh, by the employer who they would be shipped off to. Um, so divide and conquer is nothing new. Scott Walker, God bless him, uh, was very good at it. Um, and the distinction now is primarily between public sector employers and uh, employees and private sector employees. Private sector unionism is uh, now somewhere around 10 or 11 percent, whereas public sector unions hang in there about 30 to 35 percent. 
You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is John Kretschmar. I have a sense that, especially since the recent Great Recession, many people have been persuaded that they are lucky to have a job. And I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around this idea, why are people not seeing the value in organizing as a cohort uh, around their own best interests and what is that distinction between the private sphere and the public sphere the distinction between public sector and private sector um, and of course the revenue source is different but the reality is uh, the senior executives in both public and private sector are both driven by the need to get leaner and meaner they are both driven to find ways for their employees to do more with less. In the private sector, the drive is to uh, maximize short-term profits for employers, whereas in the public sector, um, the drive is to avoid going outside the boundaries of a politically determined budget. I didn't say outside a budget, but we have to take into consideration the politically determined part of it. And people want to uh, do the best they can uh, to get as much uh, 
much good service possible for the least amount of money, um, but it's a challenge. Um, they have their hands tied in many ways. And so the first organizer of note uh, uh, that I refer to in my classes when I talk about public sector organizing is a fellow named uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, of course, was assassinated in Memphis, and he was in Memphis to help the sanitation workers gain a meaningful voice, meaningful democracy in determining their future quality of life because they had been doing more with less and more with less and more with less, and there was actually deaths associated with uh, what happened in Memphis that was the spark that drove that organizing campaign. All public sector senior decision makers are caught up in uh, a budget struggle, first of all, and then how to find a way to help their employees do more with less. And there's a breaking point somewhere. This is a country that loves democracy so much that we're willing to export it with guns to other countries if needed. I mean, we just love democracy. Uh, the only place we don't value it, I think, is in the workplace where wage earners should have more than merely the right to vote with their feet and get out if they don't think the employer is being fair, but the right to organize and work with the employer to raise those levels of fairness and justice I was talking about before. I remember watching the documentary Citizen Coke, and there was a corrections officer in Wisconsin. I remember him expressing the sentiment of confusion and dismay that because he was a publicly funded worker, that somehow over a period of some months and years, he had stopped being someone that was doing a public service for his community, but now was being demonized in some way as a, a leech upon the system, upon the goodwill of the community who were paying for his salary. And that realization was deeply disturbing for this person. Yeah, the, the, um, the battle to win the hearts and minds of the public has been mostly one-sided since that memo in 71. Um, the first president of the AFL-CIO is a fellow named George Meany. And George Meany was a plumber. He had never been on strike in his life. Uh, he didn't think there was any need to actively go out and organize people about the values that unions bring and the, the benefits of unions. Uh, he thought that they were rational actors, much like we teach economics, the rational actor motive, uh, motive for people making decisions, purchasing decisions or employment decisions. Uh, and he said, the difference between union and non-union scale is obvious. And so if they just use their heads, they will flock to union offices and be organizing everywhere. Well, you know, he says that in the mid-50s at the point at time the AFL and the CIO merge and union density has been going down in the United States every year <laughs> since then. So obviously a failed strategy. Um, and the way I teach union organizing uh, to people is that they need to sell the union difference based upon values first and only after the values bridge has been built between you and the other person can the facts about wages and fringe benefits get across. So when you talk about values, you're talking about um, holding these truths to be self-evident, the, the, the more noble moral values that come from right. these principles. The, the notion of uh, democracy, the notion of having a voice and determining your future quality of life. 
uh, not having somebody dictate to you uh, what your future life is going to be like. Um, that's as American as apple pie. If I remember right, um, you know, 13 colonies got together and said, uh, no more. Uh, we actually want to have a voice. Uh, Parliament is doing a wonderful job for the English aristocracy, but not so swell over here. So, yeah. And when that happened, uh, it was celebrated. And as I said, the first Labor Day, right, uh, were unions getting together and saying, we want to hold Labor Day on the 4th of July so that we can finish the glorious work of the revolution. We've looked back somewhat at the history, and we're in this present moment. The potential for the 21st century is that by the time we get to the end of this century, will labor be relevant? We, we are maybe moving towards a phase where so many elements of production can be automated that we simply don't need the physicality or even the mental acuity That's of labor. That's a brilliant observation. Um, you know, since time immemorial, uh, as technology was introduced into the workplace, um, workers have seen jobs disappear. The Luddites are a famous example of that. Uh, let's bust the machines. Um, a short-term strategy didn't work long-term at all, right? Um, and so in the, the 80s and 90s, it was interesting as new technology and new computer services were being introduced, uh, employers wanted it to dumb down and de-skill the workforce, and unions were fighting uh, to have people learn programming skills and learn those skills so that uh, if and when their job was displaced, they would have an opportunity to work somewhere else and their skill set would be greatly enhanced. Uh, management mostly won that battle, sadly. Um, I can remember going to um, a McDonald's, I'm really old, um, in the 50s, and uh, the person behind the counter actually had to enter everything uh, by hand in the machine and, and do the totals. Now, of course, they hit a picture. <laughs> and uh, so it has been de-skilled effectively, and the wages have reflected that de-skilling. Um, the movement of the um, auto assembly line is a prime example of jobs being displaced, right? It was interesting because I was I worked at Chrysler in 1972-73, uh, back when robots were first coming into the workplace, welding robots in those days, um, on the on the line assembly line, and there's a story of a Ford Motor Company executive showing uh, the head of the UAW at the before my time, uh, a guy named Walter Ruther, around a Ford plant, and he pointed out all the welding machines. And he says, each one of those welding machines takes the place of three of your UAW members. I am taking three dues payers away from you with every one of these machines. And not missing a beat, uh, Walter Ruther said, and exactly how many Ford cars do you think those robots are going to buy in their lifetime? Because we're a consumer-driven economy. The best friends of Main Street merchants are well-paid workers. Um, there's a video out there that you may be aware of, uh, Nick Hanauer talking, doing a TED Talk, uh, where he says, I may make a hundred or a thousand times as much money as the average worker, but I do not buy a hundred or a thousand times as many meals or pieces of clothing or automobiles or whatever. So wealth inequality, uh, while it's there, does nothing to... Um, create jobs significantly. He says, 
in in his point of view. Now he's a billionaire venture capitalist. He's uh, when I get snarky, I say he's kind of like Mitt Romney, only more successful. He's basically saying consumers drive business. He's started many businesses. He said, I never hired another person if my current workforce could meet the consumer demand that was out there. I only hire people when there's an increased consumer demand, and I don't think I'm unlike other CEOs. They have the same model. So uh, going back to Walter Ruther, how many Ford cars are those robots going to buy in their lifetime? Um, so we may be going down the drain. As we automate, we reduce income. As we reduce income, we set ourselves up for a Great Depression or a Great Recession. labor, or perhaps we should think about the principles more, which is about the values that we should associate no, with. I'm, with I'm there. I'm, for the first 30 years of doing this work in Nebraska, right, whenever I ran across somebody who is not on board the union train, um, and there are a lot of them, um, I took it as a personal challenge. And so I would engage in a discussion that would turn into, because of my personality into a debate, right? And if there was a debate coach handy, uh, I think I kicked ass. Uh, I think I won every one of those debates because of what I do for a living and the facts I have available to me. The reality is after 30 years of doing that, I discovered that I, uh, my job was to win hearts and minds, not debates. And if your mind is set in the debate mode, you're going to fail. So I did a lot of reading. Um, there's a guy named George Lakoff who has written extensively on cognitive science and how the brain processes information. And I 
eventually created a class about six or seven years ago called How to Effectively Talk Union. It is for union leaders to get a values message across to their members and for their members to talk to their neighbors uh, who may not have a positive image of organized labor. How do you talk to them so that you can actually get your message across and be heard? It's my belief, and I steal it from Lakoff and a guy named Drew Weston and a woman named Anat Schenker Osario, uh, that our core values act as a filter for us. Our worldview acts as a filter. And the filter works in our brains instantaneously and below the level of human awareness so that uh, we will pay attention to and accept and take in information that is consistent with our core values and will reject, downplay, or will start arguing with, actively arguing with information that runs counter to our core values. Uh, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a TV show uh, that was stolen from England uh, called All in the Family, and the character was Archie Bunker. Archie was a blue-collar cab driver or bus driver. I can't remember which. Um, and his family, Archie was always, in the beginning of the show, he was on the wrong side of a social or economic justice issue. And his son-in-law, uh, played by Rob Reiner, who he effectively called Meathead, Meathead would give him facts and figures in an attempt to have Archie change his mind. Uh, and while we, we didn't know about this, this mechanism in the human brain, but Archie was often saying, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts, right? Now there's a psychological, there's a physiological way of understanding that. And so before you are able to convince anybody of anything, the first thing you need to do is build a values bridge between yourself and the person you're trying to talk to. Given that you recognize that there are those that don't see things the, the way you do, let me just finish then by asking this more personal question of you, which is, why are you passionate about this issue? Um... <laughs> Uh, I'm a child of the 50s and 60s where social and economic justice made a lot of sense to me. Um, jobs were plentiful. And so people like myself went into positions where we were going to make the world better for other people. That was, that was our mission. That was our goal. And um, that was my core value, part of my core values, right? Um, and so I was able to find, I was going to be a, a personal story. Uh, I graduate from college. I, it's during the war, Vietnam War. And so I become a school teacher on the south side of Chicago. I become a substitute teacher. And um, I was going to be a difference maker. I had a, I had a psychology degree behind me, and I had a black pledge son in my fraternity. So I felt I was perfectly capable of uh, going and making a difference in the south side of Chicago. I had no idea of institutional racism. I had no idea of the poverty that my students were seeing on a regular basis. I was gobsmacked. I realized that personal one-on-one -on -one was like, you know, trying to take a monument down with your fingernail. It wasn't going to work. So after a year, I moved back home. I started the trend of moving in with your parents uh, after college. It was the early 70s. And I did uh, a couple of years of volunteer work at a place called the Interface Centers for Racial Justice. And the Interface Centers for Racial Justice was uh, kind of unique. 
in that it worked off of the Kerner Commission report that looked into these civil disturbances uh, in the 60s. And the Kerner Commission said that the job, the task uh, of fighting institutional racism was to educate uh, white folks who owned and controlled the institutions that dispense uh, those opportunities, educate them so that they would be more aware and better at making sure um, those opportunities were dispensed more equally and more fairly, more justly. So the, the notion of the FHA redlining became a big part of that. We challenged TV stations licenses because they weren't reflecting community values, yada, yada, yada. It was a great education for me. Um, and after two years of doing that, I decided I wanted to become a social worker. But I needed money to become a social worker. Uh, I had to get my master's degree. And so I went to work at Chrysler. Uh, and I spent a year, just a year, saving every nickel I could. If there was overtime, I was there. If there was, uh, it was incredible, my dedication. Um, and two years later, I had a degree and a master's in social work in those days. You could get a master's in a subgroup in community organizing working with communities to help empower themselves so that they could fight city hall or whatever injustice was out there. So it was a natural piece. And uh, after helping a professor get his uh, tenure that he was denied for political reasons, he said, thank you very much. You, you've been swell, but I now have what I wanted and you'll have to find some other place to make $150 a month. <laughs> So I called my friend who was the director, a former director of the Interface Center that I worked at, and he was one of the first people to come to Omaha with the Goodrich program, which is a scholarship program at UNO. Uh, and he was here in 72, so I call him in 75 and say, golly, um, what do you got? Uh, I don't know what to do. So he said, come here, we'll figure out something. So... I came, I hooked up with the University of Nebraska at Omaha in 77, took me three years of working on the side on top of my job to build the support I needed to start this uh, university-based labor ed program. And I've been riding that pony ever since. It's been a great ride. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. for sharing that ride with me. I've been in conversation with John Kretschmar. John, thank you for being here. My pleasure. It was fun. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>